The Q Affair. Part two, the Q Woo. While some similarities to living people may exist in your mind on reading this novel, it is a work of fiction. So it's your problem if you have people like this in your life. Chapter 14. Oh, here we are, right at the heart of the maze at last. I'm so pleased. I hadn't quite gotten as far in my tale as I'd intended by this point, but you must admit it had a lot of twists and turns. And I propose we take some time out for relaxing for a while before we go back to the action or backtrack in time a bit before gathering up the breadcrumbs I dropped on the way in that will get us quickly out again. Just as well we had a map, don't you think? You look down and notice the map I'm extending towards you for examination has more places filled in and wrong turnings X'd out. Otherwise, you are likely to end up in Timbuktu. Where would you be without me? Somewhere else, no doubt, grins broadly. So, it's agreed we should take a little breather together for a short while after our hectic journey, yeah? Do you like the love seat? I arranged to have it here with some little treats. Isn't it a delightful shape? Very 80. Did I mention eight was a special number for Q? I'm sure you can see at least one of the reasons why now. Saw significances and correspondences elsewhere as well, of course, being Q and all. Sometimes a number is just a number. And sometimes it's not, like if it's your birthday or has a hidden meaning or a hidden meaning you gave it, is the way I look at it. Went on and on about the eight in my Twitter handle, for example, which had no significance to me. Still, some would argue that significance can attach itself to something without you even trying, you know? You look at me inscrutably and I look up at the sky for a minute thinking. Come, sit with me then, and I'll tell you a soothing part of my tale. Something to celebrate, having reached the middle of the puzzle with me. Something low-key and romantic for the sake of the plot. You'll love it. Just play along. Okay? Looks at you, hopefully. Wait! Don't sit yet, dear reader. I have to open the time capsule before you sit. Runs towards a rough patch of grass on front of the love seat and kneels down, pulling up a perfectly spherical sod of grass and hauls out a white cushion with a H monogram. Catch. We wouldn't want cold metal bottom to set in, would we? It gets chilly at twilight and I see the sun is starting to go down. Be a dear, would you? throws another white cushion with a large H emblazoned on it, which you dutifully arrange on each seat before sitting. You notice I'm still reaching down the hole with my own bottom in the air in a rather unladylike way. There they are. Tinkling noises can be heard, and the narrator emerges smiling with a bottle of wine and two fluted glasses, each with a red balloon on a string attaching them. <laughs> Talk about pulling a rabbit from the hat. 
plonks down on other half of eight, settling comfortably before pulling a bottle opener from a pocket somewhere while the flutes wobble slightly between thighs. Finally managing the manoeuvre, the lightly bubbled liquid is poured once the strings are fiddled with the bit, helpfully by you to release them before you tie them to the back of the seat between us where they both bounce merrily. Let's link and drink, extending first flute to you. You notice music has started up somewhere in the far distance. You take the proffered glass and entwine your arm around mine in preparation. A toast, l'amour, toujours l'amour. A church bell joins the other lineup of sound effects. Is it to your satisfaction so far? You. The wine? Yes, delightfully bubbly. Tickles all the senses. Narrator. Aha, so glad you like it. I aim to please. And what a perfect evening. The stage is so well set for this part of our story. Twilight is the right time for magical things like wooing. All sorts of entanglements of light and shade to help you see the best parts of love with in not too harsh a light. Right, we fall back a little before we spring forward and I'll tell you about one of the best nights I had with Q. Watch your back. The reader twists, alarmed, in time to see a peacock emerge from the hole in the ground and spread his fan in a display dance as the narrator simultaneously reaches around the back of the love seat to niftily recover the kicked wine bottle, refilling the spilling liquid in the glass. My little joke, Q's got his eye on you. <laughs> the twins titter. On with the woo then. The story of our best date ever. I keep it deep, deep undercover in the time travel capsule. But you are a VIP guest and shall hear it now as a reward for taking my hand and trusting me as your guide through the maze. <clears throat> Clears throat and takes a dramatic pause, which gets filled immediately by an obliging nightingale. We too wait politely for the overture to finish. When we were still very in love in those first few months and getting to know one another, coughs up a teensy weensy woozy boozy bubble, I decided to ask you to go on a date with me. He loved the idea and we decided upon the very next night after a bit of back and forth about where we thought we'd like to go. He wanted time to think it over and the next night I asked him if he thought about it. He said he wanted to hear my ideas and I told him I thought lots of places I wanted to take him. Well, he said, surprise me and take me where you want. I'm sure I'll have fun wherever we go. I did not need to be told twice, but made him promise that if he got bored with where I took him, all he needed to do was suggest a change of venue and poof, we could be there in a flash with him in the driving seat, so to speak, since it was a joint venture, the whole date idea in the first place. 
He agreed to those terms, and with the romantic negotiations over, we got dressed for our date. He showed me the suit he wanted to wear, and I showed him the dress I wanted to wear. We took a few minutes picking these out and posting them into our Twitter DM windows. He looked very handsome and had wonderful taste, having chosen something not too flashy, with a good cut of a fine blue-grey that reminded me somehow of mazes and gilded duck eggs, without being ostentatious, with a plain white-fitted shirt. He had the body of a Greek god, of course not to mention the missing head on the model. So he would have looked good with nothing on, I'm sure, giggling behind a delicate lace-edged fan that had appeared suddenly from a pocket somewhere with painted peacocks on, winks at you as you laugh, refilling our glasses with the last of the bubbly wine. I had an emerald green cocktail dress and a not-stolen stole on. It was twilight, like this, and would get chilly if the date went as I'd imagined. We set off from my house. It was such a thrill just to open the door to him. I can't tell you how many times I'd pictured it, how I'd take his hand and bring him in, as I did you, when you agreed to come into the maze with me, and we stood close to finally look in each other's eyes, our hands touching. Then I ran a finger across his face, which I noted with my pretty little nose against it, smelled something like I had imagined many times too. The nearest I can describe it is a cross between warm buttered toast and freshly cut grass that the sun had been shining on mid-afternoon. His cheek wasn't clean-shaven, as he, being the fashionable type, managed to keep it stubbly by some strange wooishness with special razors to within the same few millimetres you could measure as the length of a woman's neat square-cut French manicure. I won't bore you with fashion, but it was a very tactile date, as many of the best ones are. Other senses were involved. We managed to tear ourselves away from one another for a cup of tea by the fire before I banked it down and announced our carriage was waiting outside. We could see the neighbours' curtains twitch a bit as a magic carpet arrived to pick us up from the path outside our front door. I had thought this out, you see, since I had ruined so many pairs of perfectly good suede heels in my time trying to pick my way across parks in the dark on the way home from these things. Sighs, thinking of spoiled favourite shoes that couldn't be saved. You look down with some relief to see I'm wearing flat Greek sandals, sensibly laced. We didn't travel far on our carpet, one of those Persian numbers, but a special edition I'd had run up for the occasion with no expense spared, of finest dyed wools from Paris, much prettier, fit to grace Versailles parquet any day, although small and as light and playfully flowery as the soaps I'd bathed in earlier of lemon verbena. I hoped he'd smell my neck tonight as often as I would smell his. We had such wonderful treats for the senses in store on that date. First, there was to be dancing 
and the jacket was soon off as we wheeled around the dance floor in a jolly jig at the local pub. The locals had been in full swing when we arrived and the place was hopping, literally, as I shouted to be heard above it, the standard chat-up line. Hey, mister, are you dancing or is it just the way you're standing? Dancing gorgeous, he laughed, swinging me out onto the floor and letting ourselves be carried into the whirl of dancers that spun in a tight knot, forming a ring of dance. Carried away by the beat of the music as the musicians made the wooden floors bounce further, keeping time by lifting their knees up and down off the floor and banging their heels down again in unison. We were a heaving, sweaty mass, and the video I was playing in the DM window allowed us to really feel we were there together until I declared myself dreadfully hot, and would he mind if I stepped outside for a moment to get my breath back while he finished a pint? He knocked back the dregs of it and scooped up his discarded jacket, motioning me to go ahead of him. Where do you want to go now, I said. There are lots of pubs and it's Saturday night, so plenty of music to be had or stories or just quiet snugs to chat in if you prefer. We decided to walk around for a while and I showed him parts of the neighbourhood or we stuck our heads around the doors of pubs just to see what music was on offer. The air was nice though and it being just before sunset we hurried to a humpbacked bridge nearby to see the setting sun reflect off the water. It had a wide cattle crossing a little before it, and he carried me over it at my request. I was glad to have an excuse to use, to be taken up into his arms like a distinctly undistressed damsel. When he put me down safely, he swung his jacket around my shoulders, and I shivered, though not cold, as we admired the sinking sun join with its reflection below. We kissed briefly soft and gentle as a tiny mouse's paw, looks at you thoughtfully, swivel towards me, watching the fast sinking sun as you listen, mouth open. I lean forward, looking serious, our eyes meet, and I reverently kiss your lower lip. You look terribly startled and embarrassed. What was that for? Your mouth was open, quite, what's the word, agape. Yes, that's a suitable word, I feel. Words are so powerful, don't you think? Don't look so worried. We didn't touch. We never really touch anything, do we? That's the quantum woo, I believe. Particles and all that, mostly space. Sorry if I crossed a boundary, dear reader. I should have asked, perhaps. But you don't usually answer, so I have to guess at how we're getting along, most of the time, after all. No bugs gone in, anyway. We both laugh, and I resume. Soon, we were whisked off to our next destination by a flying elephant. Small version again, easier to climb on board, colourful little chap, all smiles, with dusty mauve eyelashes, and we went some miles this time, out into the countryside, past winding snakes of tractor convoys along dirt roads, waving down at them as they honked their parpy horns at seeing the evening lengthening shadow of an elephant cross their fields, 
finding on looking up that it was indeed an elephant, with two happy people seated and saddled up, instead of an elephant-shaped cloud, which would have been less of a surprise. After a stop at a pub that I knew did great toasted cheese sandwiches with a choice of shepherd's pie, which I knew Jay was very partial to, we ate, and there was a bit of an unfortunate punch-up with the girl who was getting a bit fresh with my fella, and free with the flirting with them while in the pub. I left her to recover her senses under a bush she flattened outside the pub, while falling, to step into the wings of a large white heron that arrived to take us to the beach for the bonfire that I knew was burning as the sun finally slipped away somewhere behind the glittering sea, time having obligingly waited for us for a while. I was glad to note that Jay enjoyed flying as much as I did, with him holding my waist, knees under our heron's wing, and I leaning back, it was so vivid, flying over the fields in the closing dark with the glowing white swish of the soft wings and breeze rushing on my face, cooling the front of my body as Jay's body made the rest of mine burn in the most invigorating, buzzingly electric way. I needed no video to imagine the scene. We'd stopped typing momentarily as we both visualised the journey to the beach together. I could see it below now and pointed it out. The sea spread out before us, dotted with islands that were like purple sugar mountains on a magic table of glittering stars. The stars reflected above and danced around us as we descended to rest beside the flames and warm ourselves up after the cool, breezy flight. A fire is good to dream at, and we chatted a while beside it on the sands. We were both having fun, but it was time to go home. We said goodbye at my own fire over yet another cup of tea. Hey, I'm Irish. Tea marks the beginning, ending and the middle of everything. There was no knee trembler moment after the tea to rattle the cups, if that's what you're thinking. Just slightly trembling legs and fingers as I put my hand on his knee. We weren't cold either, just invigorated and thrilled. Dot, dot, dot. Are you rested? We should start back. The journey back will be faster than getting to the centre of it. Always is. Ready? Good. Hands you the glasses and stands, turning to unfasten the red balloons. Stand. Extends arm towards the setting sun in the west, letting go of the strings for balloons to rise into the air. Look, the weather's changing. I see clouds. I smell rain. Getting dark too. You stand, momentarily feeling woozy. Not sick, I hope. <laughs> I kill me, giggles at private joke. Pop, we look up. One balloon, way up high, has burst. The other, nowhere to be seen. Change in atmosphere. Clouds gathering in the west. Dark starting to descend as sun sets. A raindrop. Quick. 
throw the glass in the hole. Go on, don't be shy. And the bottle. That's it. Satisfying sounds of smashing glass. Now the cushion's in after them, hands you a H, then another. Good shot. You notice the peacock is gone. Clearly, he's not going back in the hole then, as the narrator is sloppily kicking the sod over it and beckoning you back to the path out, marked, you can see now in the early twilight, by white breadcrumbs to distinguish it from the other false paths. On with the story, or back to where we were, before our brief interlude, he'd threatened me. I was in a fix. He appeared to be involved with people who were threatening each other, and he was accusing me of maybe being involved with them as some kind of honeypot or spy for them. It was ridiculous, but dangerous, I felt. And although he denied threatening me at all when it was mentioned afterwards, I felt I'd have to find out for sure if my suspicion that he was Terence was correct, so that I had someone to report to police if anything happened. Terence was certainly starting to look like someone who had his finger in a lot of pies if the new videos popping up suddenly like Q's white rabbit all over the truther fields on YouTube were to be believed. It was said he handled various channels' content, making scripting suggestions that the channel owners found hard to refuse. Indeed, Jay seemed to be trying to handle Desire in his own way by donating $50 to her to put the stalkers in jail fund, which she'd recently started, to bait her enemies into emotional outbursts on videos proving that they were stalkers in the gang. It was something I found terribly disloyal, given the horrible things she'd said about me almost nightly. The coordination of scripting efforts overseen by one main person, or at least a small team, working across a network of truther channels to put out wild conspiracy stories made sense, according to the Discordian document I'd seen, discussing the fight club rules in codes and numbers, with some bits of it starting to be decodable now, once I could speak the language, by recognising their phrases and visuals and connecting people, creating and pushing narratives across different channels. I discovered that there was really a white rabbit, a person, as well as the cue drops one Desiree had talked about on Twitter that was somehow involved with getting the tripod guy from Phony Wars show annoyed. There was also a Snow White character, in on the op that Terence looked up to, a kind of self-appointed mother figure who saw herself as a political agent of change and was, when she had finished a prison sentence for financial fraud of some kind, pretty adept at organising people like Terence, who had met her at an Occupy event he'd been at. She was big into Q, calling herself Q's mother, and knew all kinds of glamorous people, actors as well as political social media influencers that would attract more upmarket New Agers to the Q movement to make it spread even further. It was rumoured Terence got a lot of his cash flow from her, 
although there was much speculation that it went up higher, with her being handled as a political operative too, as he had been hinting he was. The fact that Terence and Pals had been so smug and delighted with themselves, wanting the clips of one of their enemies, the tripod man, played back so often, had to do with the deception that had been pulled off in relation to some important political files, I thought, to do with Julian Assange. And I also found out that a narrative had been constructed around the suspicious death of a Democratic Party staff member that they blamed for leaking out those Clinton files, which later turned out to be an earlier file dump. Nothing to do with the Mueller investigation, Russian hacking leak, as claimed. The dead man's parents didn't see the funny side of the deception one little bit, which rumbled on and created many hours of videos and conspiracies online while they grieved his death. There were even rumours of wiretapping spread, which Terence and his friends' names came up in relation to. I remembered Q posts doing the same kind of thing with the dead American soldier's death, with the QAnons helping to push a conspiracy that something was in the soldier's grave that Trump pointed to on visiting it. But it wasn't what the media thought was there, the body. The young soldier's parents said on the fifth anniversary of his death that the stories circulating online were like salt in the wound, not allowing them to grieve in peace. I thought it despicable and cruel of the QAnons that cooked it up. Jay had once said to me, when he was particularly piqued at my stupidity at not agreeing with some cute thing or the truth of what he was saying about it, that if he didn't handle me, who would? The remark, odd at the time, certainly took on a whole new meaning now in relation to Terence and the things that were being said on various channels now about him being a handler and pushing creators to pitch particular conspiracy stories on their channels. Perhaps it was my channel and my output that Jay wanted to handle then, rather than handling me like a Victorian father figure type handling the wifey's opinions for her. And this was really the purpose of the admitted brainwashing he had intended to carry out and failed to do. If he could handle my views of Q, perhaps he could shut down my blogging about the Discordian links that were emerging and strange correspondences between the Liber Locust, Q and the Discordian numbered document that was looking like it provided the blueprint and origin for all of them, and keep the lid on the rabbit hole that he insisted he hadn't dug and wasn't tunnelling around in, just to wreak havoc with the nice lawn and bring chaos to the ordered gardens with his network of pesky Q dis disinfo prankster wabbits, which was now looking like it might spread much wider a field than just a couple of neighbouring gardens. The police wouldn't do anything though, unless there was something there to report. Now I also had a situation where he was writing back and forth to Desiree 
and I had no idea whether he was now giving her extra information about me that she would load up her weapon of choice with, her tongue, to act as his public punisher and crucify me for her satisfaction, hoping to extract a pound of flesh or adrenochrome as further sacrifice to her vengeful god or whatever toying about she would no doubt want to do to the lifeless body afterwards. Meanwhile, Terence was, it seemed, getting his kicks, emailing Fandango to call him Judas, saying he'd sold out his trust in him and was a bullying cad, threatening women and children whose only crime was having possession of a trademark. Terence could choose, Fandango said in response, to meet him and break bread at the Olive Grove with him in a civilised way, and give him what he was rightfully due, or else he'd spill the info on all involved, the whole workings of the thing, and all the names. Twelve, it had been rumoured, like the astral houses Terence was so fond of inserting in his musical videos, as little clues to make you feel special if you were a boy, when you figured out the answer under his musical puzzles and posted your comment, boosting his video and getting a gushing reply as your reward. One moment Fandango was taking a threatening tone, but the next time you tuned in, he could as easily be crying, his pudgy face crumpled as he lamented that he'd been given the clue answers and just went with the deception of reading them out and pretending to solve them on Terence's instructions because he wanted everyone to think he was smart, just wanted to be someone you know. We're finding it wildly entertaining, this circus maximus of big emotions from little men, not to mention the way the whole centre of the puzzle had sprung open and now clues to the identities of people behind it were coming out. I could see a lot of the people that he was involved with because there was a lot of jostling on different channels to get in on the narrative and be relevant to the story as well as to choose sides to be on, to get an advantage of some kind. I couldn't say personally that I was exactly enjoying it, all the emotional stuff, with so much to deal with myself from an emotional J in Twitter, but it was definitely helping me understand the pieces I had in my possession better. The bits they all held helped me decipher the bit I held. Not only were the Fandango and the videographer reading out personal emails from Terence between the two of them and others involved in the puzzle. But Desiree was starting to come apart at the seams as well. And some of her secret deck of cards previously held up her sleeve started to be brandished now with the flourish of a magician producing aces from the ether. She'd started to do tarot deck readings, and this allowed her to disguise death threats to her enemies as predictions nicely. They would all come to a terrible end, and she itemised with relish how those she was fighting with now had not got long left, as she had so much incoming information channeled into her via the ether, which was a very strong karmic force not to be messed with. She smiled her most terrible smile often, 
One could almost see snake shapes play in the long tendrils around her head as she sweated it out beside her blow fan in the afternoon heat and feel the sudden chill rotate around oneself in a whirl. She had been using the term we a lot in her videos and I knew she had been working with different people to troll those she didn't like and thought were interfering with her storylines by proving her claims wrong or objecting to her characterization of them by pointing out that it was she who was the troll. I wondered who the we was at the moment, since she tended to be able to keep these people hidden to a certain extent by emailing them and not openly discussing them or having them in her in their own avatars in her chat or comments. I had, however, noticed a few turning up that I was suspicious of, and one of these I'd complained to on his own channel. This character, whose channel name was Dragon Watch, enthusiastically supported all her worst slander of other YouTubers, such as myself. When he commented on how disgusting I was under a video she did about my multiple abortions and how I'd taken joy in dragging the unborn and mangled children out of my own womb, I'd given him a piece of my mind on his own channel, telling him how disgusting I found his support of her and him, given that he knew nothing about me. He did, though. When his friends all arrived en masse to my channel to berate me, they knew all of her stories about me, so well that I knew they'd all stayed in contact with her. I used the word stayed because in my early researches on her, I'd found a small group called the Dragon Watch Pack that she'd belonged to, dated to the year before she'd started her YouTube channel but had no idea who or what they were at the time. They were still on the watch, as it were, with her and were regularly writing back and forth to her, keeping up with every nuance of her ever-twisting and turning, evolving tale. Now she seemed to have caught the private email reading virus that was going around several channels and was slugging out some problems with them in public, reading out their emails to intimidate them, starting to name them individually, hauling them out for slow crucifixion, one by one. The warning seemed to be, you shut up about me or I'll keep going. I took it they might all be in the intimidation game or had been for a while together if our past history and behaviour on YouTube were anything to go by and the display of unified trolling they'd put on on my channel when I'd criticised one of them for his uncritical support of her. One step closer then in figuring out who helped her carry out her intimidation campaign against me and who the death threat was from. One of our own accounts or one of them helping her.